destroyed. I'm saying that with a smile, but there was definitely, before I retrained, there was a point where I was like, oh, I'm, I'm burning out. Yeah. I actually don't know which way to kind of progress in my in my profession. And and that's not because I don't, I didn't love working as an occupational therapist, I did, but uh, there was definitely burnout because it's all destroying to kind of have, you know, those conversations again and again and be faced with, um, you know, kind of other other people in MDT who know you know really well, who are, have a really reductionist view of occupational therapy. And, you know, I, I work with people that have just retrained now, you know, in the community mental health teams, um, and they're facing similar things that I did when I, you know, qualified 20 years ago. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we'd like to welcome along Anila Ahmed. Anila is an occupational therapist and also a CBT therapist and works in a community mental health team in Bradford. And I th think it's also fair to say, Anila, that you do quite, you do quite a lot of schema focused therapy as part of part of your remit. So really glad to have you here today. Oh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Hi, Anila. It's really nice to meet you and thanks for coming along. Could we begin by perhaps you telling us how long you've worked in uh, mental health and how you've got to your current uh, position? Yeah, I've worked in mental health for over 22 years now um, and definitely took the longer route to becoming a psychological therapist. Um, I completed my degree in criminology and psychology and originally wanted to be a probation officer or work in prisons. Um, that changed when I finished my degree and I worked um, with children um, that have behavioural and emotional difficulties um, and, and in, are in care. Um, I then completed my master's in occupational therapy and then worked in forensic settings, um, low secure and step down units, um, predominantly with males um, as an OT. And then later completed um, my CBT training, became a psychological therapist, um, and then, you know, chose to specialise in certain models like schema therapy. Anila, what, what attracted you to forensic work? Because it's not everybody chooses to be interested in that in the first place, do they? Yeah, um, and it's interesting. Those were some of the questions originally I got asked at the interview. And I think, I don't know if this was anything to do with me being a young female at the time. I, you know, I was in my early 20s. But there was something that always attracted me to, to mental health. But I, I guess with the forensic settings, it was more so um, thinking about people who exhibit these behaviours, I guess, who, you know, who have um, really deprived backgrounds and will end up in, you know, um, prisons and, and secure settings and then what, and, and I guess behaviours that society deems like not okay and bizarre and, and kind of a, a kind of fascination with figuring out um, more about that. 
Um, so as soon as I kind of qualified as an OT, um, my first job was in a low secure unit and I then, you know, the most part of my career um, was, was in those type of settings. Thank you. Um, and either I, I, I regard myself as being particularly lucky because I've worked with some great OTs at Littlemore Hospital where I worked in the past and then more recently at Millfields in East London. We had a fantastic uh, OT team who practically devised the whole programme. But there might be some people who, who, who have never worked with an OT and don't quite know what OTs do. Could you give us a brief description of the kind of work that you did when you were an OT? Yeah, um, well, occupational therapy effectively is healing and treating through people doing what they want to do and what they need to do. Um, and in the settings that I worked, some of it was just about establishing a routine that's purposeful and meaningful. Um, you know, whether that's getting up in the morning and being able to go to, say, the gym um, or thinking about like getting back into music or vocational work or integration back into the community and you know being able to go out to the shop and buy themselves something because and they you know when they haven't been out into the community for say 15 years um yeah and you know alongside that it was an i guess them getting roles back into their life and that purpose, that sense of belonging, and building up their identity, you know, some of the more important work that makes us us. Do you think it's uh, a profession which is um, undervalued and we sometimes underestimate the kind of sophisticated nature of the work? Oh, definitely. I, you know, now I, I love what I do as a psychological therapist, but I look back now and I just think about how grueling my journey was, um, you know, in, in having to always advocate for, you know, my profession and what I do and, 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 and kind of fight my corner in, you know, my cl clinical opinion and kind of positive risk taking and, and you know, knowing these people that I work with, and and get and helping them, I suppose helping their recovery journey. And I think there's something really special about occupational therapy in that, on the surface, it can look like you're, by some I've been told, aren't really doing anything, or you're just going out for a coffee or a a jolly. I've been told with somebody, but actually, you're not you're not just going out for a coffee with them, you're assessing their ability to, their gross, you know, motor skills, their fine motor skills, their ability to interact with other people, their sensory awareness, their emotional state, their able ability to manage finances and kind of proximity and, you know, all, all those things and making an assessment of what that means for them in their life and, 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 and how development of that, you know, could go on. Um, but it's it's definitely um, not given the respect as a profession um, that it should be. And did, did you find that that kind of inhibited the kind of 
influence and progress that you could you could make yeah um yeah it did and i think i was in my early 20s when i graduated and and, and first like i said had, you know got um started working as an occupational therapist and i was i was going to say often but i think predominantly i was the only ot in an mdt and i was very young i was inexperienced um and you know, I had to kind of sell my profession effectively and, and my opinion, my clinical opinion, but also kind of establish a place for myself. Um, and that's really, really difficult to do when you're surrounded by other professions that um, are dominant, you know, in these settings and I are held in high esteem. And I really struggled to find a place for myself um, and I would consistently question my ability to do my job well. You know, I look back now and I remember, um, you know, um, consultants um, in, in an MDT before the meeting started us having a conversation about um, who's going to make the brews, etc. And some and um, the consultant looking to me and saying, oh, we should have a list um, of who likes what brew. Um, that's something that OT would do, do you not think? And um, I look back now and I think, oh, I would have, uh, I would, um, well, there's a few things I would have said in, re in response to that, had, had, had that been said to me now. But at that, you know, at that stage of my career um, and being as young as I was, um, it wasn't something that I felt able to kind of challenge or, you know, say anything else against and, and I you know and it's it's a difficult place to be and um, so it definitely it definitely shaped my um progression I guess I you know I there I think I it question it made me question my ability my competence um you know I think some of that was my stuff in terms of you know I come from um you know, parents who are immigrants and, um, you know, they're not well educated. And, and some of that's my stuff, but I think largely it's also the setting. Um, you know, I don't feel like I was, um, I had role models around me that um, were, you know, and I, and the knowledge um, at that stage of my career to kind of be resilient and robust and, and kind of fight for what I think I deserve. Although we're, although we're different professional groups, Anila, I can you know identify with a lot of what you're talking about, that idea of being a singleton post. You're in a team where quite often there'd be a psychiatrist, consultant psychiatrist who has a lot of power and a lot of status within the team and usually um, significantly older. And then a nursing staff group who have power by virtue of being there collectively. There's a lot of them. And so it's very difficult to find a voice, I think, in a team as when you're in a singleton post, whether that be as a psychologist or an OT um, or speech and language therapist, I would imagine would have similar, similar things. And then also how you find a way to belong in that team whilst maintaining your professional, um, I suppose, dignity and credibility, because I think sometimes people try to manage that by trying to be, become part of the nursing team and do that by going out on the nights out and trying to get in with the group 
rather than finding a way to be able to do it um, professionally. And I think it's hard if you don't have access to role models. And I wonder how often do we see occupational therapists in the more senior um, levels of management within um, NHS settings? It's rare. I generally, the only progression route for me and for many people that I know is to go into management and which is, you know, one of the reasons why I retrained um, as a, you know, as a CBT therapist, because I knew definitely that management wasn't for me. And, and I'd got to a point where I felt like I, you know, there was very little that I else I could do. Um, you know, without stepping out of mental health. Um, and, and there's very few people that I know that um, are occupational therapists that have um, actually progressed if they're not going into management. And I think at one point I felt, um, or I thought that it was largely to do with me and my competence um, and kind of not being able to, you know, progress in any way but I think the more kind of experience I gained and the more exposure to different settings that I learned actually there's there's a whole host of occupational therapists that actually retrain um, usually as psychological therapists um, because I think you know they, they go hand in hand um, and, and it's, it's a shame because what happens to the profession when you have people that have all this like, you know, this experience, this wealth of knowledge, who are then either progressing into management um, and therefore lose that contact a little bit with clinical work or are then retraining um, and, and stepping into other professions. Yeah, well, as you were talking, I was just thinking about the fact that obviously as a psychologist, you can become a consultant psychologist as a nurse you can become a consultant nurse is there such a thing as consultant occupational therapists i think in some countries there might be it's rare um you know i have friends that are trying to are occupational therapists who are trying to kind of do you know i would say occupational therapy without borders they're working in unconventional settings or trying to but it's it's a shame that the profession somewhere has become stuck and i think um that's largely to do with the way we view health um you know you know generally how we view health but there should be occupational therapists in loads of different settings working with people that are homeless you know working with in care homes working um you know you know, I've, I've got a friend, sorry, I just paused there for a minute because I've got a friend who wants to launch a project um, working with people um, from the South, predominantly the South Asian community um, and kind of do this work where he's working as an OT, but he's integrating kind of aspects of their spirituality and religion. Um, and he said, oh, I would love to do this privately because actually I, I work outside of my remit to do this with the NHS and although the work is praised um, and it's seen as really helpful and meaningful and what's needed. Actually, we don't have the funding to back it. Um, and so I guess it's rare, but it's a shame. I would love to see the profession progress in that way. 
Um, and in places like Australia, I think it has. Um, but it's, you know, but then you can, you know, I worked in Malaysia as an OT for a while and um, it's, yeah, it's very far behind. So you've got other places where, you know, there's a very reductionist view of what an occupational therapist does. Yeah, and I think even something as simple as, you know, that, you know, if, the, you know, in terms of your career pathway, if there isn't a way to progress to consultant, as you say, then you have to go into management. And, but alongside that is the, the, it communicates something about the, the valuing of the role, doesn't it? If you're, if it's not possible to be a consultant occupational therapist in the UK, then what does that say about how we value the skill, the the tasks that you're doing. And I think, you know, David touched on that in his question about, is that because we think being able to go to the shop and do uh, and prepare a meal, we devalue that because we all do it and we therefore think everybody can do it. And we don't recognise that for some people that's, that's taken a planned, um, graded work towards, towards, in order to be able to achieve that. But it, you know, I wonder what that's like to be part of a professional group that perhaps does feel a bit devalued. You know, how, what effect does that have on you? Kind of like going to work in a context where you might you might not feel as valued as other members of your team might. It's soul destroying. Um, you know, I'm saying that with a smile, but there was definitely. You know, before I retrained, there was a point where I was like, oh, I'm, I'm burning out. You know, I, I, I actually don't know which way to kind of progress in my, in my profession. And, and that's not because I don't, I didn't love working as an occupational therapist. I did, but um, there was definitely burnout because it's all just trying to kind of have, you know, those conversations again and again and be faced with, um, you know kind of other other people in MDT who know you know really well who have a really reductionist view of occupational therapy and you know I I work with people that have just retrained now you know in the community mental health teams um, and they're facing similar things that I did when I you know qualified 20 years ago and it's a, it's a shame and some of them now are you know i have they have had conversations with them where they're like oh i we don't you know we don't i don't see myself progressing to like a senior um you know beyond the senior ot because i don't i don't want to step into management so what do i what what do i do yeah i'm sorry to hear that because actually you know it's not nice to think that that's how a group of professionals may be maybe feeling um but just moving on if you're now working full-time as a psychological therapist what what models have you trained in and what attracted you to those i trained as a cbt therapist and then i have also trained in dbt and schema therapy i predominantly um practice um like schema focused therapy and in all honesty um it's it's a really comprehensive model I and I, I and I've seen it work I love that you know that you can in its entirety like think about a person as a whole all these different parts of them that in other models that you know you might not be able to explain so for example even when I worked in forensic settings a lot of 
um, people would see that part of the person that committed the offence, um, you know, and were unable to hold the, the vulnerable part of them that had a deprived upbringing, that had, you know, parents that weren't around or had experienced abuse and, and you know, or, you know, parts of people that, um, you know, soothed by overeating or taking drugs, for example. And so it's very co a comprehensive way to kind of think about a person and their life. Um, and not only that, I, it, it heals the core trauma, which, you know, was one of the things, uh, you know, after, you know, trained in CBT, I found that there were, there were people that I was seeing who effectively were, were not getting better. Um, and they would present themselves in services again and again and again. Um, and, you know, schema-focused therapy works um, with the core trauma. It, it, you know, it, it enables you to kind of cause a emotional and a cognitive shift, which is, and behavioural shift, which is, but it's huge. Um, and, for, you know, for those that don't know, it, it, it pulls from different therapies, you know, CBT, um, kind of attachment theory, gestalt therapy, you know, so so it's really comprehensive. But I I I, I love it and I've seen huge success um, you know, with inpatients in people that I see their recovery. Um, and it's and it's good to see that. It's good to see that because it's long term work and sometimes can be a little bit unforgiving. Um, so it's nice to see kind of that change with people. Anila, do, do you think your background in occupational therapy has added something to your skill set as a therapist? You know, do you do you approach the task differently? Does it strength? What strengths has it given you to bring into the the role of psychological therapist? Hugely so. Um, I even though I took the long, the longer route to get to becoming a psychological therapist, I don't think I'd do it any different. Um, being an OT has kind of enabled me to have kind of more, kind, you know, a greater insight as a clinician into what makes um, people who they are. You know, we have all these things that we you know, parts of our identity and things that we need and want to do. But what makes it special is we all have different ways of doing them. And, you know, there's, you know, so, so I, I feel I'm able, I think that I'm able to enable people to kind of get purpose back and belonging back in their life in a way that I'm not sure I'd just be able to do as a psychological therapist. So there's some work prior to psychological therapy and after psychological therapy that I think OT has to offer, um, which I am able to do. Um, you know, I'll see people sometimes who prior to therapy will, um, and sometimes not even entering therapy, you know, want to get better, but they just don't have the motivation and ability to kind of get get back get out of bed get dressed brush their teeth you know and and it's it's about movement there and i see some people after after therapy who have gained so much from psychological therapy but are still struggling to go to the shop to buy some milk and it's 
And I think, you know, there's work there that I'm able to do that I wouldn't be able to do just as a psychological therapist. Um, so it's definitely given me an additional skill set. Thank you. And psychological therapists often offer therapy as part of private practice outside of their NHS role. Is that something that you do? Yeah, so um, I, I also work privately um, and I offer CBT and schema, schema focused therapy. Um, the little psychological therapist, the little psychotherapist is, is um, the name of my practice. But yeah, I do, I do that work on the side and it's given me the freedom to, I guess, integrate OT into some of the work that I, I do. That was difficult. Um, that's difficult to do with the NHS because there's a remit to the, my post. Um, but yeah, and it gives me that, that freedom to work um, flexible, uh, flexible, in a flexible way. Anila, earlier on, you, you told us about uh, the experience in, in the early part of your career where the consultant suggested you were the ideal person to draw up the tea list which uh, I remember I smiled at the time but actually it sounds like a really painful experience and that pain has actually resonated down the 20 years and still around I, I, I feel and um, I, was, I was also wondering how, how your your background has influenced the work that you do and the career that you've had. I know you mentioned that your parents came to this this country. Do you think you, this background has provided any advantages or disadvantages to your career? Hmm. Both, I guess. Um, I think now, um, I guess I've, I've done a lot of work on myself uh, and I have greater insight for, about what goes on for me. But I think for a large part of the early part of my career um, and, and a lot to do with my upbringing, um, it was about um, not showing any weakness and um, keeping my chin up and, um, you, you know, being efficient, being better, you know, doing what I could to kind of have a life you know in this country and, and I didn't quite understand the effect that that had on me I, I guess um, you know when I was when I was younger but and how the settings that I worked with fostered kind of a toxic environment for me um, and I and I think it did um, it kind of fed these beliefs of that I held about not being good enough and actually not not being able to kind of progress or being held as equal or in high esteem and actually you know my parents fought for that um, and, and kind of they you know faced a lot of kind of scrutiny and injustice and kind of you can't you carry that over um, so in a way it, it did it did disadvantage me in a way because I think it eroded a kind of self-confidence that I had and compassion for myself uh, in a huge way. Um, and looking back now, I can, you know, there's loads of points in my career where, I, you know, comments such as that, I wouldn't, I, I'd comply to them and I'd, I'd smile and I'd bear them. 
and as I've you know as I've got older and I've done work on myself and you know um, and, and and kind of my my awareness through psychological therapy and training etc. Um, I do might see myself now at an advantage position where I'm able to kind of work with people from the South Asian community in a different way and kind of I'm able to name some of the things that I see that happen in in the NHS settings that, that I work in and um, you know where we don't quite um, we I guess we acknowledge the gap that there's you know there's people you know I work in Bradford you know it's it's a huge South Asian community there but actually we see very little um, people from the South Asian community that actually engage in longer term therapy or that they will engage and then they'll um, you know they'll be discharged by either non-attendance or whatever and we'll name all that but the work around changing that is very very limited um, and that's some of the work that I'm doing, like, in, you know, personally, I'm doing that in my private practice, and I'd like to kind of continue that, but also trying to change that in the, you know, challenge these kind of the status quo, I guess, in, in the NHS settings. Um, you know, it's given me, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is it's given me resilience to be able to do that and the confidence to be able to do that and understand, because of my background, what, what goes on, not only for the people that we see that come to our service, but also the clinicians that that I see that are very young and inexperienced and have come from similar backgrounds who are then faced with um, a power dynamic, you know, uh, which is, you know, which is really grueling and it's and, and a little support, I guess. So, I mean, you haven't been explicit in this, but I I'm assuming that you were subject to racism at various times and misogyny. What kind of support did you find for yourself? Yeah, I I was. Um, and yeah, I haven't been explicit in that. And I was. And I think it's because it was... I guess what I was faced with was in a way not... Um, it, it was it's not what people would view as racism and it was very covert and and some of it's because it's institutionalized and um, some of it was white fragility and um i in the early part of my career i guess i wasn't i did i had very little support i think i was a, a minority maybe in largely in the 15 years I worked as an OT uh, until I moved to Bradford actually until I moved to working in Bradford um, I was the only I was a, man, a minority like I think I was the only person from a, a, an ethnic minority in those teams so there was very little support and I found support in my friends um, in my family it didn't always give me what I needed to progress like uh, progress in terms of like you know, like professional armor, I guess. Um, but now I'm surrounded by people that um, I would say are experts in their field and that are great supervisors and they they advocate me 
taking care of myself um, and knowing myself. And, and that's been huge for me. It's been huge for me in the last like five or six years being surrounded with these people um, who have enabled me to gain confidence and know myself and name what goes on and change um, behaviours that were that are eroding my sense of self. Um, it's just a shame that these aren't the things that I've I thought about initially in settings. You know, often you'll have supervisors that are busy and you've got supervision that's only going to last, you know, the X amount of time and, there is, and you want to get through your, talking about your clinical cases and and, and, and you know the part of yourself that needs care that's often forgotten um I've become a lot better and more skilled in kind of putting that part of myself first yeah that's a very good uh, point that uh, last one you just made Anila the, the other thing of course arising from what you said is is that it sounds as if the Asian community is very much underrepresented within the teams that you've worked in and so I suppose there's a question about why that is why do you think that is and what should be done to, to remedy that there's a number of factors you know poor education would be one I think there's still a very medical approach to kind of health in in like these communities and and often there's a fear there's a fear that there will be that there'll be a, a negative consequence to them taking care of their mental health or approaching services you know you're either your children will be taken away or, or you will be locked up you know these um you know some of it's generational trauma and the need i i guess that i would love to see work being done in the community centers um, you know, getting rid of the power dynamic and actually working, you, you know, with communities in their languages um, to kind of bridge the gap in a way. Um, and and it and at the the education, um, I guess there's there's a, there needs to be a huge emphasis on that. Um, you know, I still see people that are born and bred here. Um, in, in you know in Bradford but have very little understanding because of um you know their family background the, the culture the community about mental health there's a huge stigma um and there's very little work being done to kind of remedy that thank you finally Anila um we all know how difficult it is working in the field and in the NHS how do you look after yourself and what advice would you give to others? I am laughing as I say this. I try to have a really good work-life balance. It's, it's challenging. Um, one of the things that I have seen with, um, you know, people with a, with a similar cultural background with me, as me, is that they will they try to make up for things outside of working hours. So they will work harder um, and do things in their own time and kind of stuff around developing services that will all be done in their own time because they want to achieve something. 
Um, I think it's really important to kind of strike a, a balance, a healthy balance there, um, and to not try and do it all in one day. Um, you know, and, and as I was saying before, I've been lucky enough to meet people um, and surround myself with people that um, know who have got to know who I am and are very honest and, you know, great supervisors who will who advocate me taking care of myself and kind of are able to name unhelpful patterns um, and kind of things that at times I guess I've been afraid to raise. Um, you know, they have the life experience to do that. Um, it, it's it's um, it's an important part of, of your journey to kind of do some of that work, that personal work on yourself, to be able to understand what happens to you in settings like this, because it, it um, prevents you from thriving. And I mean, that's that's not that's not what, what we want. Um, so so definitely to kind of think about yourself, think about um, what you want, what you want from life, I guess, um, and, and these and what working in certain settings does to you and kind of surround yourself, find those people that are, you know, that are able, that are going to help you build that resilience, that confidence um, and that self-care. such a good point Anila and it just reminds me of the reason why David and I started this podcast because we were both having conversations about how working within forensic settings can really make people quite jaded and quite cynical and how important it is to find ways to I guess be creative um, to counteract the destructiveness that you're exposed to within forensic settings so as you're talking you know that was really resonating for me yeah and um me and some friends used to joke because we would say you work so long in forensic settings and when you and and the people and you know a bit tongue-in-cheek but we what we would say is the people that are help, in a healthy way able to reflect what happens in these settings will then leave they'll move on but then what are you left with you know who you know you are left with these people that there's certain culture and are quite jaded and and yeah that's that's not what you want for people that are in this setting. Actually, they don't need that. They need to be exposed to the opposite. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Anila. Oh, you're welcome. It was, it was good to talk to you.